So we talked a lot about the brain last time, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that, and then we're going to talk about organization of hierarchical systems, and then we're going to talk about their representation in mythology. So this is from a paper by um, Swanson. And Swanson has been studying the hypothalamus for a very long time and brain organization in general. And the way he conceptualizes it is, is in a rather Piagetian sense. And so the, the essential outputs of the nervous system are basically patterns of motor behavior. And those are controlled by patterns of spinal cord activity. And those are controlled by patterns at higher brain levels, including the hypothalamus. And then those are controlled by emotional systems. There's patterned responses at the emotional level. And then those are controlled by patterned, patterned responses at the level of the cortex. And the body sort of builds itself from the bottom up. Um, and as it builds itself from the bottom up, it's trying to integrate the function of all the systems that are necessary for the maintenance of the biological maintenance of life in the medium term, short term, medium term, and long term, and in a social context that works for the social context and also works for the individual context. So you can imagine that that's a rather, it's hypothetically possible that there's only a certain set of solutions to a problem that complex. And if that's the case, then that would account for the emergence of something approximating a universal morality. And it would also explain why every possible political system won't work. So, now this is Swanson's map of the hypothalamus. Now, you'll note that the hypothalamic structures, they're the ones with the little circles and so on, on the left. Like every other element of the brain, <clears throat> the hypothalamus isn't a homogeneous structure, right? And generally, when you name something, if you think about it, the name presumes a homogeneous structure, because otherwise you would differentiate the name, and you would call it a bunch of names instead of just one. And so what happens, for example, that as people learn more about the brain, you'll, you'll notice this as you learn more about the brain, you stop thinking about it necessarily as the brain, which is like a homogeneous mass of neurons, and you start thinking about it in terms of its functional subsystems. And then once you learn more about those, you think about those functional subsystems in terms of their functional subsystems. And you can keep differentiating all the way down. You can differentiate all the way down to the molecular level. And so as your knowledge improves, your level of resolution improves, and you can use more and more precise terminology. What you see is that the hypothalamus is composed of a number of systems. And one of the things that Swanson has done with this particular diagram is indicate which parts of the hypothalamus, this is in a rat's brain, are basically responsible for reproductive behaviors and which are responsible for defensive behaviors. And that's part of the hypothalamus. Now, the other part, so, so, so there's a very archaic system way down in the bottom of the brain older than emotions, about as old as pain, that's responsible for these very fundamental motivational drives. So you can think about the hypothalamus, if you want to think about it this way, as the part of the biological basis of what Freud would have called the id. Now, we don't have to think about it as in terms of relatively vague statements like the id anymore, because we know more about the underlying circuitry, and we know that it's... That it's um, 
quite standard across mammalian species and even farther back in the phylogenetic chain than just mammals. So, yeah? Yeah, well, you, you know, systems develop in an evolutionary chain, right? And some systems are more primordial than others. And so the hypothalamic systems are more primordial than the hippocampal and the amygdalic systems. And so pain, you can think of pain as an emotion. People usually don't. They usually think about it as, an, as a motivational system. But the, the distinction between those terms is vague anyways. Pain has an emotion-like component and a motivation-like component, like anger does. All I mean by older is that it was there first. So anxiety, for example, seems to be an elaboration of pain. So pain, pain represents, pain indicates damage to the system that's being stimulated, basically, something like that. <clears throat> Well, let me get to that, because I will get to that, because that's yeah, another... So, I mean, reproduction for some mammals has a component. Probably for all of them. Yeah, for, for mammals. Yeah. So. so, this governs reproductive behavior. There would be outputs from the reproductive system to other systems that mediate positive emotion. But they're old, too. So, part of the, part of the hypothalamus is devoted to these motivation-like processes, I think their motivation like personalities, and part of it is actually devoted, the other part of it, the other half of it is devoted towards exploration. And the exploration system is the source, the, the roots of the exploration system in the hypothalamus are the, are, the, are the bottom part of the structure that produces the kind of positive emotion that's associated with approach and, and joy. <laughs> So, and it's also extremely old because it has its roots in the hypothalamus, so that's the dopaminergic system. So half the hypothalamus, roughly speaking, is devoted towards the regulation of um, fundamentally motivated behaviors, like sexuality and defensive aggression, say, and the other half of it is devoted towards exploration. And so that's quite interesting because one of the things it means is that exploration, the tendency, the proclivity towards exploration is also unbelievably archaic. It's really, really old. And as I mentioned, I think I told you this before, if you study the behavior of a decorticate cat, which is a cat that really has almost no brain left except the hypothalamus and the spinal structures, that cat is hypo-exploratory. Hyper-exploratory, sorry. It explores more than a normal cat, which is quite strange given that it doesn't have much of a brain, but part of the reason it explores more is because it can't form the memory structures that would inhibit the exploration as a consequence of learning. So basically what happens is you're curious about something until you figure it out, and then you've built a representation of it, which is in some sense a representation of what to do around that thing. And once you've built that representation, it's not necessary to be curious about that thing anymore because you've figured it out, and you might as well go on to some other thing that you don't understand. But if you don't have much of a brain, you can't store the consequences of your exploratory activity, and so you can't inhibit it. So that's why a cat without a brain is hyper-exploratory. So what I think is really interesting about the hypothalamic work is that we're going to talk a lot about the representation of exploration in mythology. 
And it was very interesting to, to me to learn that the proclivity towards exploration and the positive emotion that's associated with that is so ancient that it's grounded in the hypothalamus. So it's as old, so to speak, as hunger and sex. And those are very, very old things. So, now, you might say, well, if the hypothalamus can do all this, why do you need the rest of the brain? And that's a perfectly good question. Um, some animals don't have much more brain than that. It seems to me that the reason that you need it is because when you have motivational system A and motivational system B and motivational system C and motivational system D, there are conflicts, there are potential conflicts between their operations across spans of time. One can interfere with another. And the optimal arrangement is so that the operations of each of these systems is sequenced in such a manner that each of them get what they need on an ongoing basis. And so, part of the reason that you need the rest of your brain is to do the proper sequencing, is to figure out when you should do what. And so, the rest of the brain in part is there to take time into account. But it's not only there to take time into account, it's also there to take context into account. Because reproductive behavior, for example, has to be context-sensitive. Even though it's a fundamental motivation, it has to be context-sensitive, because every situation is not the same as every other situation, especially among animals that become increasingly complex. So, part of the reason that you need more brain, or that, that it might be worthwhile under some conditions to have more brain, is to solve the problem of how to organize multiple fundamental motivational systems working simultaneously. And that's a lot of the problems that you're trying to solve on a day-to-day -day basis are precisely that. You know, you have to add emotional regulation to that. And you have to also, because we're social animals, you have to add the problem of the fact that there's all sorts of other people who are trying to do exactly the same thing cooperatively and competitively in the same environment across different spans of time. So it's a very complex optimization problem. It doesn't seem like it's precisely computable. A lot of it seems to have to a lot of the way we do it seems to have to do with ongoing negotiation. You know, because you might say, well, what's the answer to the proper hierarchical arrangement of motivational necessities? And I think that the past can offer um, hints in that direction and also can probably inform us about what won't work. But those are sort of vague and broad. And in order to determine how to update that and bring it into the present, there has to be continual ongoing communication and negotiation. So, okay, so then you can think about the relationship between what we were thinking about as the fundamental unit of personality, because I think of this not only as the fundamental unit of narrative, but the fundamental unit of personality, is that the, the basic motivational systems, which I've sort of outlined here um, in schematic format, I'm not claiming that these are precisely, precisely accurate or scientific categories, but you can think of them, the basic motivational states basically as associated with self-propagation and self-maintenance. Those are the two big problems that a, a living creature has to solve, and then those problems are broken down into the operation of more specialized subsystems like the desire for affiliation, which is, seems to be a basic motivation among people, uh, sexual desire, those are all self-propagation motivations. Thermal regulation, thirst, hunger, elimination, 
all the sorts of things that you think of as basic biological necessities. And so each of those has the capacity to pop up something that's approximating a personality when it needs to. And so it's not a drive, which is an important thing to realize. There's a drive-like element to the degree that that process has become habitual or that it's based in instinct. So, but, so the drive-like, the more drive-like something is, the more likely it is that lower levels in the nervous system are taking care of it. And, and so maybe spinal systems, for example. So, you know, if you put your hand on a hot stove, you'll jerk it back fast before you feel the pain. And that's because there's a reflex loop between your, the sensory receptors on your hand and your spinal cord. It's very fast. It just goes like that. It's a sensory motor loop. And it's basically deterministic. So things at extremely high resolution are become increasingly deterministic. So the pain comes in after you've pulled your hand away, and that seems to be something like it's, it's teaching you in some sense. Your body is teaching you. That's one way of thinking about it. Not to do that stupid thing again. And all, they, people also think maybe that pain immobilizes us so that we're more likely to heal and, or less likely to keep engaging in the behavior that caused the damage. So... All right, so our motivational systems are popping up these little personalities all the time. And, you know, one of the dictums of psychoanalytic thought is that those little motivational personalities can more or less have a life of their own because they're, they're, they're subsets of you. And if they're not integrated into the complete personality well, then th when they emerge, they're going to be rather primordial and unsophisticated. And you see this in people, for example, who have outbursts of anger. You know, it's that... It, it isn't exactly reasonable to say that they've become disinhibited, although that's one way of thinking about it. It's actually more reasonable to assume that they haven't developed enough sophistication to integrate that motivational system, so that capacity for anger, for example, into their personality as a whole. And one of the dictums of Jungian psychotherapy in particular is that it's extraordinarily useful to integrate those elements of your personality that might have like a fiery-like nature, a potentially dangerous nature. Anger and aggression is a really good example of that, but sexual desire is also a really good example of that. If you're sophisticated, you have that system at hand when you need it, but you don't use it in a manner that's destructive to your operations as a whole across time, and you don't use it in a manner that dis disrupts the relationship that you've established socially with your family and broader society. So it's all integrated. It's like it's integrated into a game. And one of the things you might think about is that a lot of the games that people do play and that people like to watch are games of aggression integration. You know, so football is a really good example of that. I mean, those guys are massive and they're strong and they're aggressive. But, you know, by and, by and large, when they're in the football game, they use that to further the game. Now, they're trying to win individually and their team's trying to win, but at the same time, both teams are competing within a framework of rules, and that's in a broader framework that encompasses the entire audience, which is also continually giving them feedback on the quality of their play. You know, so if somebody does something particularly brutal and unnecessary, the whole audience is going to complain about that. You know, and that's, that's one of the ways by which the players determine how much force can be used and how much force can't be used. Because as the, as the game continues, it's not easy to tell when you're being too aggressive or not too aggressive. You know, so... 
it's funny, I was reading a little while ago about the Canada-Russia hockey series in 1972, and if I remember correctly, the Canadians played by European rules, which meant that there was no body checking. So that was kind of hard on them, because the Europeans don't check, but the Canadians claimed that in games they played where there was no checking, there was a lot more hitting with the ends of sticks and a lot more slashing, and like, there were, there were still all sorts of aggression, but it was ne never able to get up to the point where you could give someone a solid hit, and the Canadians' take on that was that the game wasn't necessarily less dangerous or less rough without checking, it's just that the aggression got subordinated, and so, you know, it's, it's, it's not an easy thing to figure out exactly what level of force is necessary to push any given thing forward, but none is definitely the wrong answer, you know, and if you're ever involved it, which you will be, and no doubt are now, if you're involved in difficult negotiations as you move forward, salary negotiations or negotiations about a given project, or even, even complaints, that even attempts on your part to solve problems at work, like being subject to, you know, to arbitrary tyranny or being bored to death by a useless project or something like that, if you don't have that capacity <coughs> for force at hand, you're not going to win. You're not going to win. You're just going to get walked over. And how much force you need, that's part of the ongoing dialogue. And so, and that's really worth thinking about. A lot of what happens in psychotherapy, as well as exposure to things that, are, that people are afraid of, and the development of new micro skills. So, for example, <coughs> if I have a client who isn't very socially skilled, you know, we might practice things like shaking hands and telling each other who we are. Because if you don't have that down as a routine, it's difficult to make a foray into a broader social environment. So sometimes people are stopped socially because they lack micro skills. And sometimes it's because they're afraid. And those two things interplay. But another thing that happens in therapy an awful lot is that people come in for assertiveness training. You know, and they're people who've usually, they're usually agreeable in temperament. But there are also people who have failed to integrate that capacity for aggression into their personality for one reason or another. Maybe they weren't taught to. That's certainly possible. Maybe when they manifested aggression, they were punished for it. Maybe they observed other people who were too aggressive and decided that they were never going to be like that. That's a common response. But it doesn't, it doesn't really matter because once you're an adult and you're working in a competitive world, which you will definitely be, you have to have that capacity, because otherwise you get pushed to the bottom of the dominance hierarchy and exploit it. And so, and it's not necessarily because of malevolence, partly it can be that, but often it's just, it's the consequence of the fact that generally if you're negotiating for something, there are forces pulling on that from all directions, and the, out, the obvious, what outcome is obviously right is not obvious at all, and so it's a matter of negotiation. And so you have to be able to put your position forward with some force and not be timid about it and be articulate about it. And all that is a consequence of integrating these systems that can be very dangerous if they're not working properly into your personality rather than ignoring them and letting them run in an in underground fashion, which is what they would do, yes? Yeah, well, the thing about Freud... So the, the comment was that it re, it's reminiscent of Freudian sublimation. Freud more or less had an inhibitory model of 
socialization, you know, because he thought of people as pushed by the id, so that the ego, as pushed by the id and inhibited by the superego. And there's some truth in that to the degree that, that you're subject to quasi-tyrannical pressure by a society that isn't well integrated. A lot of what's going to happen to you is don't do that. And the capacity to not do something that you're motivated to do, like an impulsive thing, is obviously necessary. But sublimation, in a sense, is the basis of Piagetian theory. And Piaget's alternative to Freudian thinking is that it's not inhibitory, especially not if, it's, if your personality is properly integrated. What it is instead is integration into a game-like structure. We're going to talk more about that. So the point is, is that you're starting at high levels of resolution with your body, you know, and you're building these structures out of your capacity to move and your capacity to perceive and these motivational systems that are driving you. And as you become socialized and as you bring more and more people into the conversation, the hierarchy gets more and more complex and sophisticated. And then it's the whole thing that's regulating, it's not inhibitory. You know, so you don't want to inhibit your aggression, you want to harness it so it serves the purposes of the greater, the individual and the greater good, if you can figure out how to do that. It's better that way because you have more power. Now, it might be better for you to be cowardly and, and retreating if the alternative is to be impulsively aggressive and destructive. But that's not nearly as good as having the capacity for aggression at your hand and being able to use it in a sophisticated manner. So, all right, so this is a way of thinking about how things, yes? I don't think it's, I don't think you can say that it's that simple. I mean, I think that happens, but how it happens we don't know. And the thing too is that this organization does not only take place in your brain. That's another thing that the psychoanalysts, I think, overestimated because they tended to think of psychic regulation as internal, but it's not. So, for example, as long as you're acceptable to your peers you seldom have to regulate your own behavior because they'll regulate it for you right and so when you're out in the world I mean you guys are all sitting there in a particular way partly because if you deviated from the appropriate way to sit there whatever that is if you deviated from that sufficiently the group would turn on you right away so, as long as you're awake enough to respond to the subtle cues that people are giving you, you don't even have to worry about the internal inhibitory problem. Now, what you want is you want your nervous system organized in a way so that it fits well into the overall organization of the society. And there has to be crosstalk between those. But society exists, right? So, anything society will do to regulate you, you don't have to do. And that's really useful, it's an outsourcing problem. You know, and there's lots of things you outsource. So one of the things is, think about something like self-esteem. Now, self-esteem is a very, I don't like the word, because self-esteem is really something like extroversion minus neuroticism, it's, it's close to that. But, let's, so let's look at it in a slightly different way. Let's say, well, how valuable should you regard yourself? 
And so then you think, well, that... So, and then we might think, well, maybe that has something to do with competence. Okay, well, so how competent are you? Well, the answer to that is you really don't know, and there's actually no way of telling. So your nervous system has to guess, and the way it does that is that first, you're put on a normal distribution for negative emotion, and that you're just sort of given that at birth, that's your temperament. And then the socialization can pull that one way or another. You know, it can, it can make you more stable or less stable, depending on how you interact with your parents and the immediate environment, and how dangerous the environment is. And then, the next thing you do is you observe yourself operating in the world, and you see how good you are at solving problems, and that adjusts it. And then everyone else is broadcasting to you all the time what your comparative value is. And so that's, that's really how you establish an estimate of your competence. And it's almost always comparative competence, because the question in most groups isn't, can you do something? It is. But the real question is, can you do something as well or better than anyone else in this particular group? Because there's no absolute standard for being, to, being able to do things precisely, you know. Everyone is insufficient when you think of the, the ultimate task, right? Because people's knowledge have limits. So the question is, well, are you up for the challenge compared to the people around you? So it's, it's a very complex calibration process, and it certainly doesn't all take place inside. It can't. You're not, you're not complex enough to do that. And it's foolish anyways. You know, partly what the stock market does, the stock market is a massive conversation about the relative value of property, roughly speaking. And it, very, it, it, it moves around a lot, because you think about all the variables that are being taken into account at the same time. It's not only every company and every commodity in relationship to every other company and every other commodity it's also all that in relationship to the price of all the currencies and that takes into account political stability or instability and disease and catastrophe and hurricanes and so on and so forth and like that ha there has to be something dynamic and ongoing that enables those calculations to be made because they're it's incalculable otherwise and the same thing is true in some sense of your competence. You can't calculate that on your own. You have to have help. And so that's partly why the group also decides where you are in the dominance hierarchy. Now, the group can also under or overshoot. That happens lots of times, you know, because maybe the local environment that you're in isn't a very good representative of the broader environment. This happens to lots of smart people in high school, for example, or junior high, where if they're... in intelligent, that is not necessarily socially valuable for a number of years. And if the person who's intelligent doesn't get out of that environment into an environment where intelligence is valued, so hopefully that's a university, then you know, their, their actual potential isn't going to be valued by the dominance hierarchy in proper keeping with its, with its actual real-world value. So anyways, okay, so the issue is, and this is the ethical issue, is, this is the ethical issue, is how do you hierarchically organize these sub-personalities? Because you might think, well, why do you have to hierarchically organize them to begin with? Now, there's an element here, for the postmodernists, you can think of, of, of this. So, 130 years ago, Nietzsche announced that God was dead, right? And so that was, a rep that was a reflection of the collapse, in some sense, of the believability of traditional religions. 
And you can think of traditional religions as a, co a coherent, overarching narrative. Now, you might argue about how coherent it is, but they're pretty coherent. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're accurate, but they're pretty coherent. So, the slats were pulled out from underneath those structures. Now, what happened during the 20th century was two things, and one was some of those religious narratives were replaced by ideological narratives, and that turned out to be a really bad idea. And so that was one stream of thought, in some sense stemming from Nietzsche, or at least from his observation. There was another stream of thought which basically said, if religious structures have collapsed, and they had to, that means all grand narratives have collapsed. And that's really a postmodernist claim. But the problem with that claim is, you can't act unless you have a hierarchy of values. Because you can't figure out what to do next. Also, you can't even figure out if you should do anything. But you certainly can't figure out what to do next. Because in order to organize your behavior and move forward, you have to say that one thing is more important than many other things, right? Every time you act, you're making that decision. Now, you might say, well, you can only make that decision at a micro level, like what's best now. But people who do that are impulsive. That's how we define them. And th that doesn't work out well across time. You know, what they're doing is responding to, um, in some sense, instinctual whims moment by moment. That doesn't seem very sophisticated. You don't want someone around like that. You can't predict what they're going to do. You can't cooperate with them. They can't follow rules. You can't have a project with them. You can't trust them. It's like, that isn't going to work. And so, the idea that grand narratives are obsolete is... It's based on a misunderstanding of exactly what the narratives are. And it's also based on absence of realization that a narrative is primarily something you act out before you represent. So, a narrative can be latent. So, let me give you an example of that. So, I thought it puzzled about this for a long time. Let's say you go out and watch a chimpanzee troop. Now, we know that chimps are organized in a dominance hierarchy. And we know that the dominance hierarchy among chimps <coughs> is male-dominated. The females have a dominance hierarchy too, but the fundamental dominance hierarchy is male-dominated. It's not like that so much with bonobos, by the way, which are very much like chimps. But... So you can watch the chimps, and you can see that chimp A knows that chimp B is higher up in the dominance hierarchy, and chimp D knows that chimp C is higher up in the dominance hierarchy. And you can even see that the offspring, like if you have a high dominant female and she has offspring, all the other chimps know that you don't mess around with her offspring because she's a dominant female. So, the, the, the mapping of the dominance hierarchy, the mapping is quite sophisticated. So then you might say, well, the chimps are following rules. So, but then you think, well, no, they're not, because they don't, they don't actually know rules, because, well, because you've got to ask what exactly is a rule, right? Well, well that's a good question. Like, a rule seems to be the articulation of a principle, but it seems to be something that you have to represent. Like you say, well, a rule is chimp B always submits to chimp A. That's the rule that the chimp is following. But the chimp isn't following rules, because the chimp doesn't have rules. But there's regularities there, and so what those really are are behavioral patterns. They're not rules. Now, understanding that is extremely useful, because what you can understand is that regularities in complex social behavior can emerge in the absence of any conscious representation 
any consciously articulated representation of those rules. Because you might ask, well, where do moral presuppositions come from? Assuming that, say, religious systems, for example, are concerned with moral presuppositions, and that social systems are concerned with those too. Where do they come from? Well, there's lots of theories about that, right? The Marxists would say, well, it's all about exploitation and economic advantage. And the postmodernists would say it's all about exclusion and power, because they're sort of quasi-Marxists, sort of. They're quasi-Marxists anyways. There's always this, there, and, and you know, at Karl Marx, for Karl Marx, religion was the opiate of the people, and he thought about it as a structure that had emerged because the power elites wanted to dominate the, the you know, the, the people who weren't in power and to extract out value from them. And it's like, there's no doubt that there can be an element of exploitation in any social system, and there's no doubt that social systems are hierarchical, so that there are people on the top and people on the bottom. But in human society, there's lots of dominance hierarchies. There's not just one. And we value lots of different things from people. And it's by no means obvious that the dominance hierarchies were set up consciously, through conscious thought, by any group of people over any span of time for any purpose whatsoever. It's particularly obvious when you also understand that, well, we are not the only things that have dominance hierarchies. Chimps have them, wolves have them, that's why you can have a pet dog. You understand a dog, you know, it doesn't even want to be the boss in the house. That's a nervous and upset dog. It wants to have its position as a valued, low-level entity in the dominance hierarchy, and a dog is just absolutely happy when that happens. So. You know, because what is a dog going to do? Buy groceries? It's like, no, it's not. So it has to be low in the, in the dominance hierarchy because it doesn't have the competence. And one of the things that's very, very bizarre about Marxist and postmodernist thinking is that there doesn't seem to be any recognition that dominance hierarchies are often structured based on competence, not on, like, arbitrary distribution of power. I mean, if you want to go have your appendix out, what are you going to look for? Are you going to look for the most powerful doctor? Or you can look for the most competent doctor. Well, you hope that there's a rough relationship between power and status and competence, right? Because otherwise, how are you going to figure it out? But if it's a good hierarchy, it's based on competence, not on arbitrary power. So we might say that when a dominance hierarchy starts to be based on arbitrary power or purely on economic, on economic terms, then it's actually turned into a tyranny. It's no longer a functional hierarchy. It's already stultified and twisted into a form that can't be sustained. And then people are going to get upset about that and start talking about it, or, or worse, they're going to start doing things that are quite disruptive. But the idea that the hierarchical structure per se is pathological, or that it's consciously imposed, or that it's not necessary, or that it has, it has nothing to do with competence, it's like, no, that's just... That better not be the case, because we would be in serious trouble if it was the case. So, I would say the more, the, the more functional the society, the more the, the power hierarchy is based on competence in relationship to what the society deems as actually valuable. Now, and not, obviously, no society meets those criteria per perfectly, because you can't. It's, it's part of a dialogue and, and a continual processing of information, you know, so you can't hit the target, it's always moving. But you, you can hope that the dialogue continues. So here's, here's a little vision I had of, of how things work, like a democratic society works, okay? Because people often think if they're conservative, orderly, low in openness, then they think the conservatives are right, and if they're 
more on the liberal or on the left side, high in openness, low in orderliness, then they think that the left is correct. But, but the left and the right aren't correct. They represent different systems of values, and the values that they represent are valid sometimes in some situations. And then the question is, well, when and in what situations? And the answer to that is, not only do you not know, you can't tell. And so it's like this. So imagine that people are on a cliff. It's like a, they're on a flat plateau and it's a cliff on both sides. And down at the bottom of the cliff is fire and rocks. And so you want to stay on top of that cliff and it's quite narrow. And there's a line you should walk down, right down the middle, but you can't tell where it is. So what do you do? You put all the lefties here and you put all the right-wingers here and you put a rope between them and you tie the rope to you. And the right pulls this way and the left pulls that way and if they're pulling properly then you can walk right down the middle. But the only way they can pull properly is if they keep talking to one another. You know, and if, if the left disappears then the right pulls everything over the cliff down into the flaming rocks. And if the left disappears then the right pulls everything off the cliff down onto the rocks. And we know that, we know that. And there's been good personality models developed recently, they're not public yet precisely, that show that if you push a virtue to its extreme, it turns into a vice. And that all the vices it basically end up in the same place. Yes? Uh, what would you say happens if both sides are talking a lot but not to one another? Like if there's a lot of preaching to the choir on either well, side. Well, it's dysfunction. Yeah. It's dysfunction. Because I was thinking about modern American politics where they can actually show with data that it's increasingly polarized. Like, well, what it, what it means, what that means is that people can't get along. That's what it means. And, you know, you can say, well, part of getting along is following a shared set of rules, and that's true, but the rules are kind of low resolution. But to get along, like you think about your family. If your family is structured so that it's just a bunch of rules and you better damn follow them or there'll be punishment, you know, that can be better than just sheer chaos. But it's not as good as general principles encompassing continual dialogue. That works best. And you know, you might think, well, what are the general principles? And what we'd hope are, well, we can look at what people have done in the past, and we can look at our history and our culture, and we can think, okay, we're going to try to, we're going to try not to do the stupid things that people have done in the past that are evidently stupid. Like maybe Nazism isn't the way to go, for example. So we're going to see, no, we're going to try not to do that. We can extract out those general principles, but then we have to talk continually in the present because the present keeps moving around. There's no way of mapping it using a structure from the past. You can only approximate it. You know, it's like, you know, if you took a, a Google map of Toronto from 10 years ago and you said, well, this is the map, it's not going to be updated. It's like you'd have a real rough time driving around the waterfront because you'd keep running into skyscrapers that, you know, aren't supposed to be there. And so there's, the map is obviously useful, but the update process is also unbelievably useful. And you can also say, if you look at left and right, you can roughly say that the left is on the side of update and the right is on the side of structure. And you might say, well, how much update and how much structure? It's like, enough to solve the problem. That's the answer. What's the problem? Keeps changing. How do we keep up? We talk. And part of that also is, like if you're talking, most of you guys are lefties because most of you are open and not very orderly. 
Now, there's going to be exceptions in here, but, and you're young, because youth is often associated with, with political beliefs that are more on the left. And I think that's because you're in a more plastic state of, of development, right? There's still a lot of things open to you. So, but, <laughs> the thing about it is that you have to get along with the right, and that's partly because the right represents what's already there. So how do you do that? Well, that's hard, but the one thing you definitely do is listen. You try to figure out what the hell they're up to, you know, and why, and what they stand for, and the value of that, and where it's too extreme, and it's not easy, but that's, that's why a democracy is a dialogue, and not, that's how it regulates itself, is through the dialogue. Okay, so, what you're basically trying to do is or integrate your abilities, your sub-personalities, which is how I'm going to represent it, into a functional hierarchy, and a functional hierarchy is one where the subsidiary parts of the hierarchy don't conflict. So, let me give you an example. You can tell me what, and I, I based this on the Piagetian notion of the equilibrated state. So, Piaget had this idea that there's two ways you might be able to run an organization. So, say you're moving towards a collectively defined goal. And one would be to put someone at the top of it and kind of give them complete control, tyrannical power. And so that meant you were going to do what that person said, or else. Okay. Now the problem with that is that that person isn't always going to be right, and that you're not always going to be happy about doing what they say, and that the fact that you're not happy means you're not going to be as productive, and it also means that the organization is going to have to expend quite a lot of energy keeping you in line. Okay, so here's an alternative. Alternative is, here's the goal. Let's agree on some general principles in relationship to the goal, and then let's negotiate. So, one of the things I did with my kids when they were teenagers was, you know, that there's a certain set of procedures that have to be undertaken in a household in order for that household to function, right? So, roughly speaking, people need to eat. It should be clean enough so that contamination isn't a problem. It shouldn't, be, it shouldn't be so messy that it's impossible to do anything that you want to do in a house, you know, etc. There's, there's guidelines that we all basically implicitly understand that, that constitute a well-regulated familial environment. Well, so then how do you obtain that? And one of the processes that I put into place was we would meet and parse up the jobs and come to a solution, and the rule was you can't leave the discussion until the solution is found. You have to accept the solution unless you can come up with a better one, and that we'll implement it over a period of time and see how it works. And that worked, I wouldn't say it worked perfectly, because nothing works perfectly. But it's a good process, because it brings everyone into the game. They get to define the end, they get to define the game, they get to define the rules, they get to define the processes by which those rules will be enforced, they get to run it as a simulation and see how it works, and then at some point later they get to have another discussion about it, but you don't want to be discussing it every, every, you know, every time there's dishes to be done, you won't want to discuss the entire moral substructure of the whole household, you know, and dishes are a big deal because they're part of, dishes and cooking are a big deal because they're part of the, there's a tremendous conflict in that area because of, because of the role, rapid role transformation that characterized men and women since the pill was invented. So it's a place where, 
you know, massive social transformations manifest themselves in local landscapes. And that's also why solving the problems in your local landscape is also the way of solving the big problems, you know. It's like, who does the dishes, when and why, and what are the rewards and punishments associated with that? Solve that, and you solve like 30% of the tension between men and women. So, and that means it's really hard to solve. It's not obvious how, how you do that, and how you do that over the long run, and what the reward should be, and how valuable it is. So, et cetera, et cetera. It takes an awful lot of negotiation. But if you don't get it right, then you have a continual war in your household. And you pay for that, because if you're having a war in your household, then you're going to be stressed to death, and that will kill you. So it's no joke to get these things right. And when you're doing it, it's applied philosophy. It's sophisticated and applied philosophy, because that's all you have if you don't have roles. Right? Roles, you don't negotiate. And that's good, because you don't know how to negotiate. No roles, it's negotiation, slavery, or tyranny. Those are your options. So, these are very complicated problems. That's also, though, why when you, when you work hard to solve them in the domain that you have in your hands, you're also doing the best you can possibly do to figure out how that might scale up on a broader, in a broader way. Right? I read a great book once called Systematics, written by a guy named John Galt. It's a really fast, fantastic book. Yeah, I know, John Galt, eh? Weird <laughs> enough, man. It was actually his name. John Galt is the name of a fictional character in an Ayn Rand book. And he's one person who stops the world because, for a variety of reasons. He stops the industrial world because he's thinking he's getting exploited. It's, it's had a huge effect on modern American monetary policy, by the way. So, anyways, this guy John Galt has written a whole bunch of axioms about organizational structure, which are quite brilliant. And there's a couple I really remembered. And one is, the organization does not do what its name says it does. I love that one. It's so smart. So, and the second one was, large functional organizations grow out of small functional organizations. So if you want to build something big, you have to start it small and local and then figure out how to make it scale. And in some sense, that's what you're doing. That's what you're doing in your relationships with other people, and that's what you're doing in your familial situation. That's what you're doing in your intimate relationships. You solve those problems, you, you develop a template, like a skilled template of perception and action that you can then bring out into the broader world. It's really important. So, so partly, you know, you inherit a hierarchical structure and you might think about that as whatever principles bind your culture together and then some of that's rigid and pathological and half-dead and needs to be destroyed and re-updated and some of it isn't, and you have to figure that out by negotiation, and that's hard. But you don't want to blow the whole damn thing down in one gust, like the bad wolf and the straw house. It's like, then you have nothing to live in. So it's, you, want to, you want to make modifications in a culturally <laughs> determined structure with caution and care, because that is all that stops you, that's all that protects you from chaos, apart from your ability to update your models. And you blow that over and you find out what's behind it. And part of what's behind it is the dragon of chaos and the terrible mother. It's not good. You know, you saw what happened to Iraq when the Americans knocked over the hierarchy. Right? It wasn't good. Now, it wasn't good before because it was a tyranny. But it's clearly, it's not obvious that it's better now. You know, and it's, it's also possible that what's going to happen is it's going to be replaced by a way worse tyranny. So... Knock over a structure, 
the water comes flooding in. It's just like a dike or a, or a dam. So, all right, so that's your problem. Now, you know, I, I set that up as part of a moral hierarchy. So, at the bottom of any process, you say, well, maybe you're trying to be a good person. We might, we might as well assume that. You might say why, but my answer to that would be because it's better than not being a good person. You're going to run into a lot less pain and misery. And you're going to be a lot less destructive, and you're going to hurt a lot fewer people, and you might leave everything better than you found it. And that's not so bad. It's certainly better than doing the reverse of all of those things. So, unless you think there's something particularly positively valuable about pain and misery, because, and that seems to be, you could make that case, but if I put you in pain and misery, you do everything you could to get out. So even if you thought that that was a reasonable solution, if I imposed it on you, you'd do everything you possibly could to escape. So all that means is that you don't know what the hell you're talking about. Okay, so, because what you act out is more representative of who you are than what you say. Because what the hell do you know about yourself? You have a vague model of who you are and a vague model of society. And so you can wrap off some articulated representations, but the probability that they're going to really map the underlying structure is low. So, okay, so we'll assume you're going to be a good person, that's what you're striving for, and then we can decompose that. And you can decompose it all the way down to micro-behaviors. And so the issue is, you try to build a hierarchy. At the bottom it has all your micro-behaviors, you know, the things you can do with your hands and your eyes and your mouth and your body. That's the highest resolution level. And then you're trying to organize those into higher and higher, into more and more abstract and powerful structures in some sense that are also homogenous inside. They're not full of internal contradictions. So, and that's how you establish peace. That's how you establish psychological stability. And that's how you establish peace. And there has to be negotiations at all of those levels. And roughly speaking, it's better to negotiate at the low levels, if you can do it. You know, so, I, I use this example fairly frequently. It's like, so you've got a four-year-old kid, and their room is a mess because they've been playing. And you think, well, that room can't be a mess. Why? Well, it's hard to play in a messy room. That, that might be one answer. So you have to restructure it so that you can have, so that you can play again. That's part of why it should be clean. So then you tell the four-year-old, clean up this room and then you leave and then you come back and it's like nothing's happened and the reason for that in part perhaps is because that's the wrong level of resolution to solve the problem at with regards to the four-year-old you could only say clean up your room which would be maybe at the same level as say family care there to someone who has the underlying structures already in place so you might say to the child see your shelf and they can do that because they know how to follow pointing and they know how to specify an absence and they know how to link that to language so they'll do that see that hole yes okay so you know the person has enough skill underneath that abstraction to implement it fine then you say see that bear and you know they can manage that so they look at the bear you say well pick up the bear and you know they can do that so you, they pick up the bear and you give them a pat and then you say put the bear in the space and they do that and they look at you and you give them a pat and it's like, and if you do that with a child for the whole room three or four times then what you're doing is building the understructures, right? from the bottom up and then you can say, clean up your room so, but 
if the child, so for example, you come back and the room isn't clean, you might think, well, what do you do about a child who's being intransigent and won't clean up their room? And the answer is, well, the first thing you do is make sure that that's the right level of instruction. And that's the case also if you're negotiating with a partner or an intimate partner. The first thing you should assume if they do something stupid, which they certainly will, is that they're stupid. You know, and that you have to help them out building the microstructures of whatever it is that you're asking them to do. Because people aren't. People are full of gaping holes and they lack social skills of all sorts. It's like, and it's a huge part of the tension between friends and between couples. It's like it's absence of ability. And so you do your person a great favor if you say, um, you know, you forgot my birthday. Okay, well, what am I supposed to do about that? Well, you might say, well, that's up to you to figure it out. So, no, assume I'm stupid and tell me exactly what you want. And, I'll, and then you'll say, well, that doesn't really mean anything. And I'll say, yeah, but we're going to be like together for 30 years. So if you teach me this one time and it's kind of awkward and stupid, then maybe the next time it'll be 50% better. You know, because, well, because you're looking at a trajectory, right? And so you can build, because one of the things, look, one of the things you could think about, for example, is, let's say you make a meal. Okay, now let's say your, your, your goal is to make a really good meal in an efficient way so that everybody is really happy about it, including you. So that the probability that you'll get to eat lots of really good meals across your whole life goes up. That's a good solution. So then you might think, okay, I made this meal and it was, it was a costly expenditure of time and I have to be paid for that in some way in order to be happy about it. So let's, let's, let's think about that for a minute because it's a concrete problem. So let's say you spent a bunch of time making a good meal. Okay, what do you, what do you not want people to do? Yeah. Okay, okay, so they're not supposed to say, ooh, what's this? Okay, that's a bad response. What else do you not want them to do? Right, 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 right. Okay, so there's not going to be a lot of bickering at the table. Right, because then you're going to think, what kind of stupid idiot would make a nice meal for this lot of, like, insane chimpanzees, right? So you're not going to want to replicate that. What else would, would, you, would you want them not to do? Yep, okay. What else? Not help clean up. Yeah. Right. Not be grateful. Not notice that you put a lot of time and effort into it. Not notice that it's above the normal standards, that you sort of went above and beyond the call of duty. Right? Maybe show a little bit of thankfulness. Yeah? So then you think, okay, well, I want to set up my life so that I get to eat really good meals for the rest of my life and be happy about making them. You think, okay, well, what are the preconditions for that? Well, then you have to fight for the preconditions because the alternative is you cook slop miserably and you fight right and one of the things that's interesting about one of the things that I often do with my clients is we do some arithmetic because people have a weird idea about what's important in their life so you might think you got 16 hours a day of awake time right so and you're gonna spend four of those hours three of those hours interacting with food. Okay, so that's, let's say four, let's say three. It's one-fifth of your life. Twenty percent of your life. Okay, get it right. Get it right. It's twenty percent of your life. You got it taken care of. Wow! Perfect! 
you know, and you think, well, who's going to think about, think through those things? It's like, well, do the math. It's not a math. It's arithmetic. It's like, you know, and so sometimes people will come to me and they'll say, I have to fight with my child for an hour a night to get them to go to bed. I think, okay, let's do the arithmetic. So, how long have you been fighting with them? Six months. How long do you think this will continue? Indefinitely. Two years. Okay, so let's say it's two years. Okay, so that's, we're going to say that's 800 days for the sake of simplicity in math. Let's say, yeah, we'll say 800. And so that's 800 hours. And so that's 20 work weeks. So in the next two years, you're going to spend five months of work weeks fighting with your child. Okay, you expect to like them at the end of that, do you? It's like you're going to fight with someone for like five months and you're going to like them. No, that isn't going to happen. So you might think, well, how important is it to solve that problem? Well, it's five months of work weeks worth of importance. You could put a week into it and, you know, it might be helpful. And so it's, it's very... I'm trying to make a case that you have to look at the hierarchy, the hierarchical structure of your values, you know, and the best way to do that often is by paying close attention to things that people normally... They're invisible normally. They're invisible. And that's not good. You have to fix them. And if you fix all those things, those little tiny things, if you fix them, which is hard, you know, it takes negotiation, but it's not impossible. You know, because the first thing you want to ask your partner or your family is, well, how would we like to have a meal? You want wretched, nasty food that someone just threw together, and it's burnt, and we're going to fight about it all the time, and it's really erratic, and it's not predictable, and, and the person who's making it is unhappy, and the kitchen is a disaster afterwards, and everybody's angry about that. So that's like one solution. Do you want that? And if they all are sensible enough to say no, then, then you can say to them, okay, well, what's the alternative? And then you can think, well, we could imagine what the alternative would be, and then we can work on laying out the microprocesses that would lead to that outcome. And we can practice them over time, and we can assume that if we don't get it right in three months, that doesn't mean it's hopeless. And so, when Freud... Let me give you an example. I was reading a Gottman study the other day on marital stability. Gottman has done some really good analysis of couples' behavior. He has set up a lab that's basically a bed and breakfast, and he brings couples in there for a weekend, and he wires them up physiologically and monitors their reactivity. And so what he's, he can predict whether a couple's going to divorce with 94% accuracy. It's like impressive. So what has he found? He's found two categories of, he's, he's identified two phenomena that are very much worth knowing. The first is that the, the couples who are going to get divorced, they come into the bed and breakfast, and they speak with each other quite calmly. But it's more walking on eggs calm. And while they're speaking with each other calmly, their physiology is like, they're very aroused, and so, so they're sort of aroused like someone who's facing a predator. So you might think of an unhappy couple as predator and prey to each other. And so the words are there mostly to stop 
predatory activity, not to actually communicate anything. It's just to keep the surface calm. So then you might think, well, what's under the surface? And what's under the surface, so Freud would say, it's what's under the surface is unconscious. And, but you can say, well, what's under the surface is one of these hierarchies that's all banged up and twisted and, and, and not in reasonable shape. And so people don't want to open the door to that. So, but they do. This is a Freudian slip. So let's say this is, goes to the second part of Gottman's observations. So, the, the woman goes over to the window and she says, Oh look, there's a cardinal outside. You know, cardinal's that bright red bird, they're kind of cool looking. You know, it's kind of a trivial thing in some sense, but by the same token, it's like, it's a little positive thing and, you know, 20 of them in a day is a good thing. Okay, so then the, uh, the partner, the husband in this example, has a two-by-two two matrix of choices. One is, who the hell cares about your stupid bird? Okay, so that's one. The second one is, <sighs> then you go over and look at the bird, right? And the, the third one is, you don't make the contempt noise, but you act it out. And the fourth one is, um, you go over there like a civilized human being, and, you know, and that you're interacting with someone that you care for, and you take a look at the damn bird, and you're happy about it. And, it, and that's as truthful and real as you can manage. Okay, so, the <sighs> option, that's a Freudian slip, right? Because what it says, there's a whole monster underneath that, and the monster is all the disorganization in this entire structure. It's like the, <sighs> might be, we have been tormenting each other about various things for the last ten years, and none of them are resolved, and I'm not very happy about you for so many reasons I can't even remember all of them and I'm, I can't enumerate them right now because that would take forever and maybe we would have a huge fight but by the same token I'm not going to come over there and make you happy with your stupid bird and I'm going to indicate that subtly so you can't call me a son of a bitch because I'm just sighing and that's what I'll say if you do ask me but I'm going to load all that up and I'm going to deliver it to you and what's going to happen to you is because you're smart is your heart rate's going to go way up like you're being attacked and the reason for that is you are so what the good couples do the couples that you know stay together is they respond to each other's bids he calls them bids and so if one person wants to share some little trivial daily positive thing with the other the other you know isn't carrying around a bloody cartload of resentment and is able to respond to that in a positive way and that way the general interactions between the couples stay positive but that's also because they've worked this out now you know it's got to be because they work it out because the couples who are physiologically reactive to each other they're communicating but there's all sorts of horror underneath the surface and we're trying to figure out well what is it that's underneath the surface what's the structure of the unconscious well that's the structure of the unconscious and it's either well structured and functional and mutually agreed upon and as explicit as possible or it's this constantly and then when the couples fight about it because they're not very sophisticated and they're not very awake and they're not very aware and they don't know how to do microanalysis and they're tired and unhappy they don't say I would rather that you use cloth napkins 
when we have a formal dinner than paper napkins. They say, you do a bad job of entertaining. Well, that's not helpful, right? It's like you're wiping out the person that bad job of entertaining would be probably about at the level of family care in the hierarchy. And so what you're doing is you're hitting them in a place that if they listen to you would knock out maybe 10% of their entire be behavioral and perceptual structure. It's like, you really want to do that to someone? You only want to do that to someone under extreme conditions, right? Extreme conditions. And that would be something like maybe a warning to a child who's gone astray very badly, but you know has the skills. You'd say, well, the kind of mistakes that you're making are sufficiently catastrophic so that your life is going to go off course. You know, and then you might have a conversation with them about Often for kids, for, guy, for people that say are between 15 and 25, I know they're not kids really, but my kids are that age Part of that might be, what the hell are you going to do for a career? Right? And if that's unspecified, the person's just all over the place So, okay, so So here's some slides that represent that Right? So you see the progression of that, and if, you're, if things are operating at the top of the hierarchy That, what that means is you've mastered all the subsidiary elements And you've built them, it's not only from the bottom up, but because the, the levels cross talk, right? You know, so you can use, and that's the next thing we're going to talk about Because you're not just a behavioral creature, you're not just an animal like a chimp You're capable, there's, there's things you can do that animals can't do and what that is, is that not only can you act things out in a manner that through action will organize your hierarchy, because that's what animals do But you can also represent that hierarchy You can think about the hierarchy, you can articulate the hierarchy, and you can play with it abstractly And that's what you're doing when you're engaging in philosophy, and that's also what you're doing when you're negotiating And that's a really good thing, because it means that you can not only conceptualize changes and then implement them and, and you can conceptualize a broad range of potential changes and improvements And you can implement them and you can observe what happens But you can also communicate that to all sorts of other people So it's a great thing to be able to do The problem with it is, obviously That because you can abstractly represent and question You can also knock the hell out of your belief in the top elements of the hierarchy It's like, well, what does it mean to be a good person anyways? You know, or why should I be a good person, or is there, any, is there any utility or meaning in being a good person, or is there even any, is it even reasonable to say that there's such a thing as a good person? It's like, I think all of those questions in some sense are ill-posed, and the reason I think that is because they're at the wrong level of resolution. You know, you don't throw the damn baby out with the bathwater, so to speak, so if you're going to critique something, don't start, don't start at the highest level of abstraction. And I think that's a big part of what's wrong with what people are taught in universities today, because you're often taught to criticize systems at the highest level of abstraction. It's like, well, there's something wrong with capitalism. It's like, really, really, you're going to do something about that, are you? And it's going to work better in your lifetime. That's going to happen. It's like, no, it's not going to happen. 
you know, if you stick a stick in, in a functioning machine, even if you think the machine it's all rattly and it's like pulling people's arms in and it's got all sorts of catastrophic problems, you come along and, and like hit it with a stick, it's like it's not going to run better. It's the wrong level of analysis. And just because you have a stick and you can see that the machine doesn't work very well doesn't mean that you're very bright. It's like, obviously it doesn't work very well. You know, it's like, that's not the issue. The issue is, could you improve it without making it worse? It's like, now that's a big problem. It's a big problem. So, you know, you have a wheelchair, you know, and, and the bearings are gone, so the bloody thing just grinds away, you know, and maybe it's wobbly and doesn't work very well on the ice, you know, and you think, well, that's a horrible wheelchair, and you just take it from the person. It's like, then they're lying there on the ice. You know, it's like, oh, that's helpful. Well, you're, you don't have that horrible old wheelchair anymore. It's like, yeah, brilliant. It's like, so, like a rattle trap thing that works is better than nothing. So if you're going to fix something, well, then you have to be... I would think about it more like what you would do if you had to fix a helicopter. You know, like, you're not going to critique the whole helicopter. That's not going to be helpful. It's like, well, that's not a good helicopter. It's right, we can tell that because it's not working very well. Well, what are you going to do? Well, then you have to learn a lot about the helicopter and all of its parts and how they function. And then you have to figure out which part isn't working properly. And then you have to take that part out, and then you have to find a better part, and you have to put it back in. And then maybe the bloody thing will work, but like a high-level abstract solution to that, like helicopters aren't useful, it's like not helpful. And I use the helicopter example because with a military helicopter, if I remember correctly, you have to perform about 30 hours of maintenance for each hour the thing is in the air. Because like, what's a helicopter? It's a big lump of metal. It's really hard to get those things to stay in the air. So, and everything we do is like that, you know, it's like the fact that the electricity is working in this room is a bloody miracle. Like, it's unbelievable that it works. And there it is, working. We don't even have to pay any attention to it. And it always works. It's like, don't fix that. It's a major response to nihilism. <laughs> yeah, because that's what we're trying to do here. We're trying to figure out... What's the meaning of life? Yes. That's the big talk on Thursday. Yeah. Right, right. Well, you should... So that's also part of what people talk about when they talk about humility. Because if you look at classic religious virtues, and this is true, I believe, it's true of virtually every religious system that I've been able to study. You know, it's like humility. Okay, so what does that mean? Start at the bottom. You know, it's like fix the little things, but then the other thing is little things aren't little. You just, you know, they're, they're not little. And we already went through that with the example of mealtime. It's like, well, how much fuss should you make about meals? Well, it's 20% of your life. So, how much fuss should you make about that? Well, you should expend 20% of your energy getting that right. And if you get it right, it's like an art, right? Because, because meal preparation is, people are highly social. They're highly social eaters. If they're not eating socially, their eating goes badly right away. They can't regulate their intake, and they eat terribly. You see this with isolated people all the time. They don't even eat, or if they do eat, it's like popcorn and, and you know, gummy worms or something. It's really not good. And so, it's very, eating behavior among human beings is very, very complex. We're omnivores, so we have way too much choice, plus we're social eaters. You know, so, it's hard to get that right. But, and if you don't get it right, everyone's sick and miserable and unhappy and irritable. So, and if you get it right, it's like, you, you bring it right up to the level of aesthetics and art. It's like, that's way better. 
So, you know, when, also when you're thinking about things like the meaning of life, life has all sorts of meanings, many, many meanings. And then the meanings are arranged in a hierarchy. And so whether there's a meaning or many meanings depend on where you look in the hierarchy. But if you want your life to be better, which might be some element of meaningful life, you know, one of the things you can start doing is start doing all the things that you actually do right. So that'll improve things a lot. And then once, once you improve those things, then the way you're looking at the problem isn't even going to be the same. P fix the micro-routines and then see what happens. It's like you might find that if you get all the micro-routines running properly, the whole problem of nihilism just vanishes. So, at least it's worth a shot. So, okay. Now, here's the next thing we're going to figure out. is like, how does that hierarchy come into being? Now, for a long time, this is also a Nietzschean observation. For a long time, and this is also, this is also the basis of conspiracy theory, conspiracy theory sociology, I would say, roughly speaking. It's like, Freud critiqued religion. He said that it was a defense against death anxiety. It's like, there's a, there's a couple of problems with a critique like that. It's like, it's partly a defense against death anxiety. So one of the things that you really want to watch when you're listening to thinkers, and when you're trying to figure out how to organize your thought, is you really, really want to be skeptical of people who boil things down to one pro principle. So for example, Marx, it's economics and class struggle. It's like, well, is that relevant to the study of societies? Yes. We're structured in dominance hierarchies and we trade. It's a big deal. It's not the problem. It's one of many complex problems. And so, if you take a Marxist view of history, what you basically do is you take a look at history and you interpret it through an a priori set of axioms, which is that everything that happened was determined by economic causes. Well, the the thing is, you can do that. Because every single thing that ever happened is determined in part by economic consequences. So all you have to do, or causes, all you have to do is ignore all the other causes and come up with a really coherent narrative that you can, that you can do. Anybody who's a Marxist can do that in like three-tenths of a second. Because it's like a machine, you know? It's like, what was, it's funny, I was talking to a guy the other day. And he's, he's, one of, he's an ideologue. And, and I asked him a question. This has been bugging me for a long time. It's like I thought, you know, in Greece, everybody cheats on their income tax, right? And so that's not so good because the government can't work and then the economy fails and then everyone starves. So you might say, why shouldn't you cheat on your income tax? And the answer is, well, then the government won't work and the economy will collapse and everyone will starve. So don't cheat on your income tax. You know, and you think, well, I can cheat and that won't really matter. It's like, no, it matters. Here's why. So let's say you're doing your income tax and you're pissed off about it because, like, you know, you're giving away your money and you don't know if it's being well spent. And, of course, mostly it's not because mostly nothing works very well. And so you think, well, I can cheat because I'm only one person and, you know, how, how does it matter? But then you think, imagine we were all supposed to put money into a pool and then take money out. And I knew that one of you wasn't putting money in the pool, but that you were going to take it out. I'd think, ah, well, whatever, one person, you know, crooked psychopath. We'll just 
we don't have to worry about that person. And then it's like three people, and then it's like eight, and then it's ten, and then it's ten percent of the room. And ten percent seems to be something like a tipping point. At some point, certainly if you're the only person putting money in that pot and everyone else is taking, you're, anybody with any sense is going to think that they're a complete blithering idiot, and they're going to stop playing that game, right? So the question is, at what point do you collect enough cheaters so that the, the people who are basically honest start feeling like the game is crooked and quit playing? Well, the answer is probably something like 10%. So, all right. Back to the, back to the Freudians. Now, I don't remember why I told you that story. It had to do with economic determination. Oh, right! Thank you, thank you. Okay, so this is the story. So, I'm thinking, well, if that's the case, if like 10% is a tipping point, or 30%, I don't care, whatever it is, 50, I don't care. There's a tipping point at, at some point. If it's a minority of people, if they're corrupt, can bring down the whole system, how in the world do you ever create a system that isn't corrupt? Because all, everybody almost has to play it honestly before the thing will work. And so how do people get from the point where it's chaotic and, and corrupt, which is the case in most of the world, by the way, right? Most places are in, insanely corrupt. Some places aren't. It's like, how the hell did that happen? I don't get it. it. It doesn't seem possible to me that that happened. I can't understand it. Because the default is obviously chaos and corruption. That's easy. So anybody can do that. It's like sometimes systems work and they're more or less honest. Like eBay is a really good example of that. It's like, poof. Up props eBay. What's the average level of cheating? It's like zero. You know, it's unbelievably honest. And it's a, it's a miracle. Nobody thought that would happen. So how the hell does that happen? So, I was asking a friend of mine, and this guy too, and I laid this out, and like I didn't even get finished the question, and he said, government. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, oh, it's those places that don't have too much government that are honest. It's like, well, thank you. I mean, I'd have thought that was a complicated problem. You know, and here are you, you didn't even have to listen to the whole damn question before you had an answer. It's government. Oh, well, I'll stop thinking about that right now. It's like, God, really, really, come on. You know, you, one, one, one uh, ca single causal answers to complex questions. It's like all that's happening there is that the person is playing an intellectual game. That's all that's happening. They've got this set of axioms, they've learned how to manipulate them, it's like chess game, basically, and no matter what the problem is that you throw at them, they can run them through the algorithm and pop out an answer. It's not helpful. It's like, because for me, for example, that question only sets, even if he's right, it only sets the problem back one step. It's okay. If government is the cause of corruption, which it isn't, it's a cause of corruption, it's also the solution to corruption, but if it is the cause of corruption, then how come some places have more government than others? It's like, there's no information in that statement, all there is is a rephrasing of the problem. It looks like an answer, it's got nothing to do with an answer. So, and what I, one of the things that really disturbs me about modern university education is that, you know, a quarter of the people who are in the humanities end of the distribution are being taught to think this way. It's like, well, here's, here's a little rubric, power. That would be the postmodernist deconstructionist routine, courtesy of Derrida, who was a Marxist. And 
you take his propositions and you can apply them to everything. It's like, it's not helpful and it's not thinking. It doesn't do anything. It just gives you the illusion of, of thinking. So, okay. Let me just think here now for a minute. So we were talking about ideological propositions. Yes, yes. Okay, so what seemed to happen, once the slats were knocked out of the assumption that there were fundamental assumptions that you could rely on, so let's say like the existence of God and that your relationship to God was an indication of the greater good and that the greater good was an actual concrete thing in some sense, once the intellectual slats were knocked out from underneath that, then, as Nietzsche pointed out, the power of organized religion started to decline. Now, it's, it, it, it hasn't declined as rapidly or as thoroughly as everyone thought it might in the 20th century, right? Because the Americans have a pretty thriving Christianity on the right wing, and then, of course, there's all sorts of fundamentalist movements all over the world. But we'll just put that aside for now. It, it doesn't really... It doesn't have anything to do with the main issue in some sense. Okay, so then what is a consequence of not having the great cultural narratives anymore? Well, there seems to be two. One is, everything's up in the air, and no one knows what to do, and everybody has a question about every single level of the hierarchy, like, why are we doing this, and what's the meaning of life, and should we bother doing anything at all, and are we running around destroying the planet, and, you know, so on and so forth. So it's chaotic. And the other one is, people just transmute their religious beliefs into another kind of monotheistic explanation that's based on some intellectual proposition. And so with the Marxists, for example, it would be um, economic relationships with people. For Freud, Freud was not an unsophisticated thinker, but he did try to boil everything down to sex and aggression, mostly sex. And he had his reasons, he said, well, you know, without sex you don't propagate, and propagation is obviously necessary for the continuation of life, and therefore sexuality must be a main, the main function. And it's a powerful claim, but we do know, if you look at biological systems, we know that your motivational systems are disparate, right? They don't seem to unite themselves into a single motivational system, except maybe at the level of the reticular activating system, which is something like general arousal. So, Freud's wrong about that. So, but he was wrong in an interesting way, and I don't think he was an ideologue. But the point is, is that there are, there are multiple forms of meaning and motivation, and they're implicit, and they have to be organized. And so then the question is, how do you organize them? Now, if you have a conspiracy theory of history, like the Marxists, for example, or maybe like Freud even, because he thought religion was only a defense against death anxiety, then what you basically propose is that the structures of society are rules first and that the rules were imposed on the society by either someone or some group of people or something so for Marx when he's talking about religion he says religion is the opiate of the people and the reason that religion, religion allies itself with the capitalist interests because it allows people to justify their misery in the hope of an eternal reward and so then they're not rattling up the whole economic system and the top guys can keep extracting value from them it's like yeah a bit but not all okay because there's a lot about a lot of propositions about that that are wrong like and this is goes back to the chimps the chimps are out there in their dominance hierarchy 
and they understand the hierarchy and they behave in accordance with it are they following rules? and the answer to that is no they're not following rules what they are doing is manifesting patterns of behavior now then you might think, well did they think up those patterns of behavior? and the answer to that is no they didn't think up those patterns of behavior so then the next question is, because they can't think not really so, so the next question is, well if they didn't think them up, where the hell did they come from? you know, and it's, it's a very interesting question to ask of a, of a book like the Bible for example which is, so, well, which is a bunch of books by the way, of course you know that it's extraordinarily old and it's been cobbled together over thousands of years it's like, where did that come from? well, it's an extraordinarily complicated question obviously some people wrote it, some other people edited, some other people put it together a bunch of different people sequenced it it got modified over time, it's full of cross-references it's like, it emerged, roughly speaking so, and I can show you a very interesting visual demonstration of that later so, yes? well, it's late, I want to also explain what it's latent in that's, because this is the real issue, it's like if there's a, there's a claim that was basically brought forth in the late 1800s, it was formalized, which is the systems that we use to govern our morality are arbitrary and predicated on belief. Right, that was the proposition. So the question, and that's had all sorts of consequences, and it's a powerful proposition. The question is, is it a correct proposition? So, so here's a little diagram here. So, that's from Panksepp, Jack Pan Yak Panksepp, the two top ones, little rats, okay, so we'll tell a story about rats, this is quite cool so, juvenile male rats are wired to play, now rats are in general, okay, because rats have a play circuit it's a circuit, we have it too, dogs have it, mammals have it, you know I went to the zoo the other day and I saw a rhinoceros playing watched that for like ten minutes, it has this huge ball in its, in its compartment and the bloody thing was like dancing around, walloping this ball with its huge horn, and like, it was dancing, it was playing, it's like, that was really cool, playful rhinoceros, you know, you go out there and play soccer with it, and of course you'd get crunched like in two seconds flat, but, okay, so, play, well why is that relevant? okay, so here's, here's a cool thing, I think this is like an earth-shattering discovery, personally, Panksepp is a very smart guy, so, you take a juvenile rat, and you put them in a, in a play arena, hey? so you throw another juvenile rat in there and they wrestle around, hey? and so then you separate them then the rat has figured out that that's where he can play so the next thing you can do is figure out whether or not that rat will work to get into that arena right, so like will it pull levers to get in there, because then you can infer that the rat would be happy to go in there, because otherwise he wouldn't be pulling the levers, right, straight behaviorism, except they wouldn't say happy it's like the rat's pulling away, pop, he's out in the little play chamber, so there's another rat there and let's say that rat is 10% bigger now the rats rough and tumble play, they wrestle just like kids wrestle, they wrestle weirdly enough, they're wrestling around, having a fine time of it and it's not aggression it's different than aggression and people can easily see the difference, just like you can tell the difference when you know, my dog, I'll play with him, I kind of grab his paws and he just goes, like, he just has a short circuit, he's growling, his hair is up, and he's trying to bite me but I, the only thing he ever does is hit me with his teeth, you know 
and it's a game. He knows that I'm supposed to be able to, I'm trying to grab his fur, and he's trying to bite me. And so we do this. And it's like, if you didn't know what was going on, you'd think the dog was going to tear me to pieces, because it's roaring away, and, you know, and it's having a great time. And I let it nail me now and then. And, but it's playing, and it's obvious that it's playing, and that's way different than being attacked by an angry dog. Okay, so we know there's a difference between play aggression and real aggression. So, fine. You get the rats out there. Now, if one rat is 10% bigger than the other rat, then that rat can win all the time. Because it's an, the weight difference is enough, and the size difference is enough, so that the big rat can just pin the small rat over and over and over. Fine. So, you might think, well, what does the small rat think about that? And the answer is, okay, they go out there and they wrestle. And the big rat establishes dominance, because he wins, right? So then, you take them apart, and then you put them back together. And what happens is that then the little rat, he's charged with inviting the big rat to play. So that's his role now. So he goes up and does whatever a rat does when it wants to play. I suspect it does something like a dog does when it wants to play. Probably puts its head down and sort of dances around. You know, it's like, are you ready for this? So then the big rat jumps on him, and they roll around. And then what happens? Well, let's say you do that over and over and over, because... That's the thing, is that something that happens once is not the same thing as something that iterates across time. It's not the same thing. So, how rats play, is a, it's a completely different question if they play once or if they play a long time with the same partner, because then there's different rules. And so here's the emergent rule. The little rat won't play with the big rat if the big rat doesn't let him win 30% of the time. The big rat has to let the little rat win 30% of the time. So I thought, that's so cool, it's so cool, because what you see there, that's an emergent morality, right? It's, it's not codified in rules, but there's a, there's a procedural, there's a social proposition that emerges there, and the social proposition is, you got to let the little guy win sometimes. And even rats know that. So, okay, so that's not a rule, it's not handed down on high, so to speak, it's an emergent consequence of the interaction of two rats. Now, okay, so you might think, well, there are some boys doing the same thing. Okay. Now, Panksepp has always also found other things. So he's found, for example, that if you don't let rats play, rough and tumble play in particular, their prefrontal cortexes don't mature, and they get hyperactive. But you can treat that in rats with Ritalin. Right. So, you know, Panksepp's hypothesis, which I think is an extraordinarily credible hypothesis, is that the reason boys in particular are hyperactive is because they're not playing enough. But you can fix that with Ritalin, instead of letting them play. And what you do if you're going to let them play is you, you watch them, eh? and they're going to like play, and sometimes they're going to get a bit too rough, and then you stop them. You say, like, no, if you play like that, the game won't continue. That's like a first part of moral rule. You have to play each game in a manner that lets the repetition of those games occur. And so that's why you would have to be a good sport, for example, right? Be a good sport. Why? What if I can win? Well, the question is, what does win mean? Does win mean you win this game? Or does win mean that you play this game in such a way so that the probability that you'll get invited to play more and more games as you mature increases? So it's two games at the same time, right? There's the game and the metagame. And what you're telling a child when you say, be a good sport, is you're saying, but you don't know this because you're not smart enough, and you know, what the hell do you know about metagames, and so on and so forth, you say, well, be a good sport. Why? Well, because that's how to play properly. 
hollow explanation. But the answer is something like, well, and maybe a parent will say this, because other kids won't want to play with you. You know, that, that, that's a reason, and that's getting somewhere with an explanation. You might have to say why, and then, you know, you decompose it, and the kid will probably not ask anyways, but, but the point is, is that there's a higher moral principle at stake, and you might say, well, why is it higher? Because one of the things you might ask yourself is, are some moral propositions higher than other moral propositions? Right, which is an anti-relativist claim. So it's, it's, there's only a binary answer to that. The answer is yes, some values are higher than others, or no, they're not. No means the hierarchy is flat, and it can't be organized. Yes means either that the ordering is arbitrary and tyrannical, or that there's, an, that there's some other process at work that has a that, that applies across wide ranges of contexts and situations. Now, Thomas Kuhn, who, who studied the structure of scientific revolutions, he said, his, he, he never really figured out whether he was a relativist or a Piagetian, and he was kind of wishy-washy on the topic. Now, what Kuhn basically said was something like, Science is a hierarchy, and now and then a revolution takes place at the highest level of abstraction. And usually that happens when there's a theory, and it's being applied to explain the world, and there's an anomaly that it doesn't explain. And for a while you can just ignore that anomaly. But then it gets more and more annoying and aggravating, and takes full stage, and you can't explain it, and that means there's something wrong with your damn theory. And then, poof, someone comes along with another theory which explains that anomaly. Now, Kuhn was never sure if the new theory was better than the old theory, or what better meant, or if it was just a replacement for the old theory. It was like tool A didn't work, tool B works in this situation. Now what Piaget said though was that when he was talking about revolutions of the same type, so that would be the stage transformation, he said, no, 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 there's a rule for better. The rule is the new paradigm accounts for everything the other paradigm did, plus it accounts for some other things. And so why is it better? Well, there's a definition of better that's implicit in that. And so imagine that you knew something and it was only good one place at one time. It's like, great, that's a good thing. Let's say you replaced that with another thing you knew, and it was good in three situations at three different times. It's like, well, which of those are you going to use? All other things being equal. Well, why not use the one that works in more situations? And so we could say, well, a moral principle is superordinate to another moral principle if the superordinate principle works to facilitate the same ends across longer spans of time with more people. So then the question is, well, how should you play a game? And the answer is, what are you doing while you're playing a game? And one answer is, you're trying to win that game. Another answer is, you're trying to play that game. Another answer is, you're engaged in practicing a mode of playing that will enable you to play many games in many situations successfully. It's like, okay, which of those is most important? Well, it's obvious which is most important. If the game is worthwhile, which is what you propose, if you play it, you've already agreed to that, then obviously playing in a way that enables you to play more games of that type better is better. End of problem. So now you can think that through and see if there's any flaws in the logic, but 
But people have been thinking about it for about a hundred years, and I think that's about as far as it's got. And I, I, I can't see a, a hole in that. So, alright, so the boys are playing. Now, you may, might think, what are they doing when they're playing rough and tumble play? Okay, so now I have played with kids that haven't had any rough and tumble play. And it's really hard to play with them, partly because they're, they're, they're easily frightened. You know, they'd like to play. I know how to play with kids. They'd like to play, they're pretty hepped up on it, you know, and they, they're really excited, especially about physical play. But they're awkward, you know, so you play with them, they stick their thumb in your eye, or, you know, or they cry really easily when nothing really happens, and, like, they just don't have it together. A kid that has done a lot of physical interaction, physical playing, that kid, it's a different sort of kid, because the first thing the kid knows, it's not a rule, the first thing the kid knows is, how forceful can he be with you, so that it's exciting and interesting and fun, but it's not too much? And that's really an interesting question, eh? because actually, to really play a good game, like a physical contact game, like wrestling with a kid, is that you want to let that kid come right up to the edge of hurting you. And the closer the kid gets to the edge, the more fun it is for both, because the kid will give you a whack and he'll go, <laughs> you know, and, and that's, it's good, you know, and then maybe he'll give you a harder whack to see if he can get away with it. And kids will often, they'll come up to you, whack you, and then run away, and then they'll look, okay? and if you're laughing, then they'll come back and try a harder one, and then, you know, they're doing it incrementally, because it's exploratory behavior, and part of the exploration is, okay, what are bodies like? And the answer to that is, well, what can you get away with doing to them? But it's a more sophisticated answer too, which is what can you get away with doing to them in a way that allows you to continue to explore without fear or punishment and without blowing the whole game to bits? Okay, so how do you figure that out? You do not talk about it. Because you can't. You have to act it out. It's like, so, so the kid's hitting you and wrestling and pulling your hair and doing all these things and you're modifying its behavior very, very carefully and, and, and in minuscule detail and then you get a kid who can like wrestle like mad and they're fun to play with, they bounce around like a dog that won't bite you, you know a good, well-trained dog you can really play with and you can play with them rough and it's a blast, the dog has a good time, the person has a good time, it's like excellent, that's a socialized dog so, the other thing that kids learn, learns, which is quite cool, is what hurts them and what doesn't, and how afraid can they be and still have fun. So, you know, when you're wrestling with a kid, you put them, you know, you put them face down, you put your elbow on them, you bend them around, you throw them in the air and catch them, you know, you grab them by the leg and maybe you pull them over, and, you know, and what you're showing the kid is, here's a bunch of things that your body can do, and it's okay that they're, they're being done. That, it isn't going to hurt you, and you're not talking about it, you're showing them. And so the kid gets kind of confident about what he or she can withstand physically. And the difference between pain and not pain, and the difference between fear and not fear, and when something's threatening and when it's not. It's very sophisticated. It's very sophisticated behavior. And that's partly why kids love to play. Now, one of the things that's happened, which is, you know, an indication of a deep sickness in our society, is that I used to work at a daycare center, eh, when I was about your age, because I really like kids, and they like to play with me because I know how to play with them, and so one of the things I would do with the little kids was I would draw them horrible monsters, right, like 
big teeth things on I just sketched them out, they weren't any works of art, you know But those damn kids, they would line up to get a picture of a monster Draw me a picture of a monster, draw me a picture of a monster It's like, they loved those little pictures of monsters So that was pretty funny and the other thing I would do is play with them, you know, I'd take them out in the yard and grab an arm and a leg and spin them around and bend them over and, you know, twist them around and let them crawl on me and um, there, was, there was always one kid in the group who couldn't do that though, he's like, he hadn't been paid attention to enough, you know, so he was, I think he's like a Taoist uncarved block, very vague and ill-defined and clunky and so kid like that, you know, you'd sit down, it's so sad you sit down and you're interacting with the kids and that kid comes along sort of lumping along you know like this and they plop you plop on your lap and they like they're about as sophisticated as like a six month old you know and they're quite annoying you know which is a horrible thing because they're so desperate for attention and it's too late often by the time they're four it's like good luck fixing that man it's not going to happen you know and those kids are just screwed because what happens to them is they're so lumpy and ill-formed and and uncomfortable in their body and socially clueless and inattentive and blind and ignored and resentful that no other kids will play with them and it's no wonder because the other kids are way the hell up on the play development trend and so they're bored stiff by them it's like playing with a nine-month-old which, which kids will do you know but that's not peer play and so those kids just drift off they, get, they stay on the outside of the peer group and they never get into it they never get into it, so very, very ugly. And so now in daycare centers, you can't touch the kids. It's like, what the hell? You know? Well, why? Well, because you can't distinguish play from molesting. It's like, who can't distinguish that? <laughs> you know? And what are you going to do? You're not going to. You're going to deprive the kids of play because of your stupid paranoia. That's the whole. That's the whole process, right? Brilliant, brilliant. You know. What you're doing is you're teaching children that adults are so dangerous that they can't be trusted to be near you. That's a lovely thing to teach children, especially because they're going to be adults. Yeah. I don't think it's compensatory. I think it's a different level of abstraction. So we're going to talk about that next. Okay, so the rats. Even rats need play, right? And rats are smart enough to figure out that the little guy has to win sometimes. So, okay. Here's what happens with chimps. This is quite cool. So, the little male chimps in particular, because chimps are very aggressive, they do a lot of playing. And one of the things they do is tease the older males. So maybe the older males like having a snooze under a tree and like the the, the young chimps will come up and like poke them with a stick or tickle them or poke them and run away eh? and so and they're trying to see what they can get away with and that's dominance hierarchy challenge in its childhood form and it can be a game if it's done properly it's a game if it's not done properly it's insubordination and it's aggression and then something's actually gone wrong I'll, get, I'll tell you a story about that so one time I was in Montreal and I lived in a pretty poor area of Montreal um, and it, it was like historically poor it wasn't a slum or anything but it was a very, on the low end of the working class neighborhoods. So, and uh, in the, across the alley, about two houses down, there was this house where things weren't going on that were good. You know, I don't know if it was a crack house or some damn thing, but there were people in and out of it all the time. And there was a lot of drinking beer, and, which is fine, but it was like 
it was like antisocial, you know, it, it wasn't it wasn't fun party, it was like, you know, corrupt biker weirdos and all sorts of things. And there was a little kid there. He was about three. And I kind of kept an eye on that kid, and he was an unhappy kid. Like he was already, he had a contempt, resentment face pretty well developed already. And so one day I was out in the back alley and I was building this fence because I was going to fence my yard in. And so then this little kid came up and he came up with a bunch of his little cronies, you know. And uh, I was watching them, they were watching me with like hatred, I would say, basically. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so I was looking at one of the kids and they were watching me hammer and I motioned to the kid. I said, Do you want to? I couldn't speak to him because he spoke Quebecois and it was like Jual, which I can't speak French very well at all. And Jual, the real Jual, is like, no, I can't even hear what the hell that is, you know, so um, I, I motioned to the kid, you know, you want a hammer? And so he comes up and he, he said in French, I'm going to steal this. And I, so he was tugging on it and I thought, well, that's pretty weird. So he was looking at me mad, he's going to take this. He said, I'm stealing this. Well, no, I'm not going to give it to you if you're going to steal it. So, so that was fine, so I said no, and, and I kept hammering. They were all watching and then he, he stepped about... 15 feet back and he ran right over the fence like running on it you know and I thought wow that's pretty damn interesting it's like that's a lot of golf for a three-year-old kid you know it's like but it was provocative right it was dominance provocation and it wasn't a game because he didn't know how to play a game he didn't know how to play a game he just knew like outright aggression so he ran over this fence and then he stood there and looked at me you know and well, I don't remember exactly what I did. Nothing. I think I was just watching him. I eventually finished the fence and put it away. But I thought, that kid's headed for prison just as certainly as, as a rock falls to earth. It's like, and I know the antisocial literature. It's like, if you're antisocial at four, good luck to you. There isn't much that can be done about it. He was so ruined by that point already that there was, you know, it would have taken me, if I would had access to that kid, I probably would have had to fight with him nonstop for three months to straighten him out, and it wouldn't have been pretty, you know, because he was already, he hated adults already, and they didn't, they, he thought they were contemptible and useless, and that he could prevail over them, and that they were erratic, and he couldn't trust them to punish or reward, or to pay attention, and there was no such thing as real social rules, and, you know, power dominated everything, it's like, and that was all in him, right, it was built into him. They were mostly watching, you know, so, and I don't know what sort of peer interactions they would have had, you know, but as far as I could tell, because sometimes the more aggressive guys, they do form gangs, and the gang is actually, it's a functional unit, there is some social interaction, only within the gang generally. It's like a tribe. So those are the more socialized, antisocial guys. But some of the kids are so antisocial, they can't even work within a gang. So I don't know exactly where he was on the spectrum, but... Um, like his behavior was, it was already criminal, you know. It was just kid criminal. It's the same thing. So, okay. So, some things I should tell you about chimps too, you know. So you kind of think of the top chimp like a caveman, you know, the tough caveman with a big club. And so it's the tough chimp that dominates the hierarchy. And it's sort of like the tyranny theory of male dominance hierarchies. It's the strongest, meanest chimp that wins. Franz de Waal has been studying chimps for a long time. And he's found that that's, that's just not true. What he found was what Piaget would suggest, which is that the chimps that only use aggression and dominance form hierarchies that are unstable and prone to revolution. 
So he tells one story, for example, of this chimp that climbed to the top. This was, I believe, in the Arnhem Zoo. And uh, he was like brutal chimp, and he was a big, tough guy, you know. But he wasn't very good at consolidating his social relationships, say, with other male chimps or with the females. So, because he was too brutal for any of that, so he didn't engage in a lot of mutual grooming, say, with other males. Because one of the things you see in the chimps is the chimp males fight a lot, but they also groom each other a lot. So their, their, their relationship is more fractious and aggressive, aggressive and also more cooperative. So that's quite cool. But he had forgone most of that. He didn't pay much attention to the females. So what happened was that the two second-order chimps jumped him one day and tore him to bits. So that was the end of that. And it was brutal, brutal, brutal. I think they castrated him with their teeth, if I remember correctly, and tore him to shreds. And you know, the rest of the troop was really agitated by this and agitated for a long time afterwards. But, and chimps are brutal. Like, they'll catch colobus monkeys and they eat them alive and the things are screaming away. Like, and they're unbelievably strong. Like a chimp is about six times as strong as a grown man. And so you get near a chimp, boy, do not get near a chimp. Those things can break 300 pound test steel cables with their hands. They are super strong and they're vicious. They're vicious. So and a lot of what seems to inhibit chimp aggression is actually the dominance hierarchy. It's not clear that they have any limits on their aggression internally. So, and so chimps will, the male Juveniles, sometimes in the company of females, will sort of patrol the edges of their territory and if they come across a chimp from a different troop and they outnumber them, they'll attack them and tear them into shreds. So, that was discovered, I think Jane Goodall discovered that first and she was shocked by it because she was still kind of operating under Rousseauian assumptions and then for a long time she thought, well maybe these Maybe I've corrupted these chimps by feeding them and messing about a bit with their natural order and so maybe that's just a consequence of pathological human interaction. But then other chimp researchers reported the same sort of thing and so that's really interesting because it means that chimps do territorial raiding. And so that also means that, well one thing it means for example is religion is not the cause of wars. You know, and you might think, well that's quite a leap. It's like, no, it's not quite a leap. Tribalism might be the cause of wars, and religion might be a form of tribalism, but chimps basically engage in quasi-warlike behavior, and you're not going to lay that at the hands of any abstract conceptual system. It's territorial protection. So, all right. So, what, what Dewall found instead was that the chimps who come to the top, who manage to stay there, are chimps who are, they're strong, for sure, but they're also um, they also engage in a lot of mutual social interactions and they pay a lot of attention to the females. And so what, what it, it appears to be the case is that, and this is so cool, it's so cool. If you want to be king of the chimps, you have to be a good king. And you might say, well what does good mean? Because that's a, you think of that as a moral abstraction. What does good mean? Good, good king? Okay, let's figure it out. Being torn to bits in a violent insurrection seems like failure. Okay? So, um, being constantly hounded from all sides because you're too rough and not social enough, that doesn't seem like an optimal solution. Maintaining order in the hierarchy so the hierarchy maintains its structure across time and so that everybody's attended to properly decreases the probability of violent insurrection a lot. 
So you might think, well, what the chimp is trying to do, the chimp at the top is trying to structure the dominance hierarchy in such a way that it can maintain itself without violence in a productive manner with many individuals across large spans of time. Now, there's nothing abstract about that. Now, you might say, well, there may be different ways to do that. It's like, fine, yeah, there probably are. It's just like you can be a plumber or you can be a lawyer. You know, there's many, there are different ways, potentially, of solving that set of problems. But it's within a bounded universe. There are things you can't do. There may be many things you can do, but there's certainly things that you can't do. Okay, so then that's really useful to know, because what we can surmise from that, potentially, is that even higher order morality is something that emerges, it emerges as a consequence of social interactions between motivated beings across large spans of time, and that there's actually a pattern to that. There's a pattern. So that would be the pattern that characterizes the stable hierarchy. So, now what is that pattern? That's where you get to mythology. So, because this is where people differ from, from chimps. So, so you might say, well, why did the chimps act the way they did? They do, and you might say, well, that's because their their parents acted that way, and then you might say, well, that's because their parents acted that way, and you can make that argument going as far back in time as you want. And I already made it at one point, going all the way back to lobsters, right? Four hundred million years. That's a dominance hierarchy. So, how to behave in a dominance hierarchy is something that's been figured out across four hundred million years of evolution, at least. Now, you can infer two things from that. One is, you're adapted to a dominance hierarchy, because that bloody thing is old. So, so, you have literally, the forces of selection have shaped you, such that if you weren't able to function within a dominance hierarchy, you weren't going to survive, someone would kill you, and you weren't going to mate. Okay, so, you're prepared for the damn dominance hierarchy. Now, the next thing is, you can observe and transmit information across the hierarchy because it's a living thing that continues across time. So it kind of has its own structure that perpetuates itself across the generations. So with the chimps, for example, the status of a family is heritable. Now we don't know if that's a sociological phenomena or a biological phenomena or whatever, but it doesn't matter. It's still the case. So, and I think that's because it's probably easier for high-status animals to produce high-status offspring. Obviously, why not? They have better access to everything, and they're more confident, so it stands to reason. Okay, then there's the constraints of the dominance hierarchy itself, because it's a particular kind of structure. It has to operate within particular kinds of principles. Okay, so, we were chimps, and then our brains started to grow. We discovered how to use fire, we discovered how to use language, we discovered how to imitate each other, and we're really good at that. We discovered how to specify what someone is interested in by looking at where their eyes were pointing. And that's why we have whites around our iris. It's so that I can tell where you're looking, so I know what you're up to. Gorillas don't have that. So what that basically meant was the precursors to us, whose eyes weren't distinguishable, the direction of their eyes pointing, they didn't mate or were killed because no one knew what they were up to. So we have all these abilities that are built right into our body. We build the hierarchies they come up automatically, right? They emerge from the bottom. And then we watch them and infer the structure. And that's where we start getting into drama. So that's imitation, but complex imitation of long-term narratives. And then representations of the drama, and so that would be fiction. And then extraction of archetypal themes from the 
from the fiction or the other way around it might be that what we extracted out first were the archetypal themes makes more sense really and that would be the primordial religions what's at the top of the dominance hierarchy? God what's God? well, it's a kind of ideal it's a kind of ideal you might think that this is an oversimplification it was frequently the case, and I'll tell you the stories, that archaic people like the Sumerians conceptualized their leader as the incarnation of God on earth and he had the responsibility to act that way, it's a very common human cognitive operation, right? the Japanese were doing that right up to the second world war, and they still do it to some degree so it's like this is natural human thought the leader is an avatar of God what's God? we'll leave that question aside for now what's a good avatar? well a good avatar is whatever has sovereignty and authority well, what is sovereignty and authority? well we're trying to figure that out sovereignty and authority is whatever stabilizes the dominance hierarchy with multiple members across large spans of time in a way that won't be overthrown we don't know the answer to it because it's an ongoing investigation and a lot of it's worked out at the behavioral level but then once we started to observe it and tell stories about each other and imitate each other we could start encapsulating that in stories and so what time is it? 3.11? okay, I'm, I'll, one more sentence, I'll give you a break then I'm going to tell you uh, one of the world's great stories okay, so here, here's the idea we're banging, so just like when I'm playing with my son physically we're trying to optimize the interaction and the way we do that is by calibrating each other's strengths and weaknesses and each other's emotional reactions in a way that makes it fun and interesting and exciting and almost terrifying and that in a way that both players really want the game to continue okay, how do you do that? well, you can't say you can say, well you have to play fair that's a reasonable proposition, you can't hurt the kid you know, there's arbitrary things you can't do, you can draw out some general principles, but basically you have to figure it out on the fly okay, that's how we organize our hierarchies, we figure it out on the fly but then what do we do? we watch those hierarchies over thousands of years and communicate about it and so we're trying to figure out what the hell is it that we're up to, exactly and then we even take it a bit further, which is not only what is it that we are up to but what is it that we should be up to? It's like, how do you idealize the dominance hierarchy structure, and what should be at the top? And the proposition is something like, an avatar of the highest value is the thing that's at the top. And then the next question is, what the hell is that? And the answer to that is, we're not smart enough to conceptualize it properly, partly because it's an emergent property. It's very complex biological, sociological, emergent phenomena. And so we're trying to close in on it. And that's what we're doing when we're telling stories. We're trying to close in on it. What's the ideal human behavior? So, I have a friend visiting right now, and he's a, he writes thrillers. He's written like 20 of them. And he writes comic books like Batman and Wolverine and so on and so forth. And so, he's interested in... So the thriller genre, most of what he writes about are, are vigilante stories, you know, where someone is wronged, their family is threatened in some manner, maybe it's outside the normal strictures of the law, and they're supposed to do something about it. So I asked him what the hell he was up to, because he's a smart guy. I thought, well, why are you writing these thrillers? Why, why is that the genre that captures your interest? Very highly verbally intelligent, this guy, and he's very well educated. I thought, well, what are you up to? And he said, well, it seems to be something like this. 
I'm trying to figure out, so usually in a thriller, the, the force that is um, attacking the castle, the structure, the family, is some male gone mad, so it's like, it's like animal man, you know? Some brutal psychopathic guy, or a serial killer, or some like arch criminal, or something like that, same thing you see in comic books. It's like, okay, that's like, that's like the masculine end of the monster. Okay, but then the protagonist, say, typical protagonist might be a man trying to protect his family. It's like, okay, what do you do when a monster attacks something that you love? Well, if, if you're just like made out of tissue paper and, and gelatin, you know, you just fall over and die and then monster comes in and steals everything you have and kills everyone and that's the end of the story. It's like, okay, you have to meet force with force. Now that's a weird thing, eh? Because if you got a monster on the outside and you're in the inside and you're also male, we'll say, for this example, if you don't allow yourself to be the kind of monster that the monster is, he's going to win. So then the question is, how do you allow yourself to be the kind of monster that's capable of protecting things without turning into the monster? Well, so all his books are explorations of that. It's like, okay, here's a limit situation where even the rules aren't working. Your family's on the line, the law can't protect you. What do you do? Well, we don't know. Do you curl up and die? Do you, do you hide in the basement? Do you make a safe room? Do you move to another state? You know, do you just take it? Do you fight back? Do you arm yourself? It's like, who knows, right? What's the right thing to do? Well, the right thing to do doesn't seem to be to let that win. Okay, so he's trying to, he's laying out variants, simulations of responses, you know, and he has all sorts of reasons for doing so. So, that's partly what we're doing with stories, right? We're not only representing what it is that we're doing, and if we're not, you'd go and watch the movie and you'd say that wasn't very realistic. It has to be a good enough model of the world as it is, so that you find it credible, it can twist a principle or two around, and ask you to suspend disbelief for the purposes of exploration. You know, like, what would it be like if you had x-ray eyes, you know? It's a sort of like a superhero thing. And people will put up with that, because it's an exploratory, it's an exploratory process, you know? You can't just break a bunch of rules arbitrarily, though, because people get bored of the story, right? It's, it's not a realistic simulation. You're playing out simulations in a moral landscape. So, and I would say, the simulations that have worked best are archetypal. So there's deep themes that are kind of, they're, 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 they're like templates, and they're somewhat vague. The, the details have to be filled in, in your own life. But there are broad narrative themes that are the fundamental framework within which the specific moral hierarchy that you need has to be built. That's the proposition. Okay, so now what we're going to do is we're going to look at those narratives. And so what we're trying to do, <clears throat> two things. We're trying to figure out <clears throat> what's the proper way to conceptualize the world if your problem is that you have to act and live in it. Question number one. Question number two is if you're in the world and you have it conceptualized properly, how should you act? Alright, and so that's what these stories are trying to solve. Now, are they correct? It's like, they're low-resolution photographs. That's what they are. Or they're low-resolution movies. And people have been working on them for a long time. 
Now there's a twist here, which I think is a very cool twist. The twist is, what is it that's necessary in a story for you to find the story compelling? Right? Because that's an interesting thing. It's like, obviously, you go to a movie, you say, man, I love that, or you go there and you think, that stunk, you know, I'd never inflict that on anyone. It's like, well, they're both stories, they're both expensive, they're both well-produced and sophisticated. One grabs your interest, you can't get away from it, and the other doesn't. It's like, why? What is it about some kinds of stories that grab you and won't let you go, and others that don't? Well, that's a complicated thing, but one of the things I'm going to posit is that not only are there, not only does the dominance hierarchy have a structure that replicates itself roughly across time, but you're adapted to that structure, and part of that adaptation is that when you're presented with patterns of behavior that are general, but that also partake of the quality of being useful within dominance hierarchies, you're, att you're attracted to them. It's just like when you're a little kid, look, think of, there must be people you admire, right? Think of someone you admire. Okay, why? Why do you admire them? So give me an answer. Like, if you pick someone you admire, why do you admire them? Just pick someone. Anybody got an answer to that? Okay. Okay, 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 so that seems to be about right, eh? There's something about that. But it's interesting because often the admiration will emerge in the absence of articulated reasons for it. You know, it's more of something that hits you, rather than, and maybe you post hoc think, well, this is why, but it hits you. Now, there's some, been some experiments done, I think, with vervet monkeys. So you take vervet monkeys, in, in a hierarchy, and you take photos of the low-ranking individuals, and you take photos of the high-ranking individuals, and then you show the vervet monkeys the low-ranking individuals, the high-ranking individuals. The vervets will look longer at the high-ranking individuals. So you might say, here's a hypothesis for you. If you see someone manifest elements of the rough pattern that across dominance hierarchies enables people to succeed, you'll be attracted to that. Right? And that person, by focusing on that person, you can flesh out the archetype in some sense. You know, because the one, a student asked me once, they said, look, if archetypal stories are real, why can't we just tell the archetypal story over and over, the same story? And I thought, Jesus, that's a really good question. It's like, hmm, why would that be? And I would say, like, in primordial cultures, that does really happen. It is repetition of the archetypal story. But in a sophisticated culture like ours, there's like a... A hundred thousand fiction works. Why? Well, I think part of it is, is that the archetype, in some sense, is the template for good person. But it doesn't fill in the details underneath that are relevant for this place and this time. And so, the fiction, if it's a good work of fiction, it, the archetype shines through it. But it shines through in a way that you can extract out information that actually works here and now, in this situation. So you need you need both the archetypal representation, which is how to be a good person, and then you need information about the particulars of how to be a good person, so that you can actually do that. And I think that what happens when you find someone you admire is, they embody the archetype, but they've fleshed out the skills. And so if you watch them and copy them and apprentice yourself to them, then you can pull that in. And it's a great, 
magnificent way of developing because it means that you can benefit from their experience without having to go through the same laborious process, hopefully, of acquiring that wisdom. That's why you go to university, right? In principle. Because it's easier to go to university and learn the information than it is to go out there and bang yourself out against the world and learn all these things the hard way, which you don't have time for. Yes? Or don't want. Yeah, because a good counterexample is also, sometimes a counterexample is even better. Because, and this is another way to think about morality. I just wrote a chapter, I'm writing a book, I wrote a chapter called Tell the Truth. And then I thought, hmm, that might not be the right title. Because then you run into Pontius Pilate's problem, right? What is truth? Well, good question. It's like, do I know the truth? It's like, no. Plus it's dynamic, it moves around, you know. So maybe the, re the property is, don't lie. That's different. And you might say, well, how do I know the difference between truth and falsehood? You might say that. I say, well, most of the time you don't. Ignore that. Sometimes you do. So when you do know, don't do it. So are, that doesn't mean that you know the truth, but it does mean that you've identified a useful falsehood. And that's a good thing, because partly what you need to know to go forward is what not to do, and also what to do. But often, what not to do it's like the Old Testament Ten Commandments. It's like, here's some rough things you shouldn't do. Well, why? Well, we've kind of, you know, ground, ground our way through that. Are they absolutes? No, they're like, they're like a pattern. It's a pattern. You can vary it, but, but you, you mess with it at your peril. That's the, that's the hypothesis. So... Okay. Let's take ten minutes, and then I'll tell you the Mesopotamian creation myth, which is a lovely story.